The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. It's good to see all of you. If you don't know, I'm Vince, one of the pastors here at Love City Church, and uh, I just jumped up here to teach the Bible, which I'm very, very excited to do. So if you would, please turn with me to the book of Mark, uh, chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19 today. We're continuing through our series. It's a verse-by-verse study through the book of Mark. Uh, It's called Servant King. And so uh, today we're going to see something I think can be maybe characterized, or at least we can launch from... Uh, what is kind of a, a common saying. There's a common saying that if you're going to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. And today, we're going to read about Jesus coming into Jerusalem and making an absolute ruckus. But every single detail, I want us to keep this in mind, it's important as we work through this, every single detail is purposeful. Nothing that we will see today is the result of Jesus losing his temper or even for one millisecond forgetting his mission and purpose. It was all a part of the plan. And hopefully today, as many were then, you will be moved to worshipful amazement once all of the dots connect as we work through this together. So I hope you turn to Mark 11. If you don't have a Bible with you or an app to follow along yourself, we will have the scriptures on the screen. If uh, you need a Bible, if you don't own one, please let us know. Uh, One of our favorite things to do is to give those away for free. So we have some here, okay? So we're Mark 11, chapter 1, going to verse 19. Here we go. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent Two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer 
for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, I think some could read this passage and and wonder, maybe, if Jesus is starting to crack under all the pressure. Like, does, does he need a spa day? Does he need to go down to the Dead Sea, you know, do like a sea salt face scrub, maybe a mani-pedi, you know, hot stone massage, and, and just relax a little bit? Is that what we're looking at here? Because he's telling fig trees, you know, no one's ever going to eat fruit off you again. He's flipping stuff over in the temple. Is, is Jesus just got a little too much going on at this point? Um, no, that's not the answer. It's not the case at all. The intricacy of the intentionality with which our Lord comes into Jerusalem is truly astonishing to behold. He is fully in control for every part of this. Okay, Let me show you what I mean. First, I want us to look at the donkey. Okay, there is, There's debate here about this cult. Uh, there's debate among theologians on, on whether this whole situation where he says, go there, there'll, there'll be this cult, untie it. And if they ask you anything, say the Lord has need of it. There's debate among theologians whether this was prearranged because Jesus had been through Bethany before, um, been, been through this area, or was this an example of, of operating in divine knowledge? So basically some think that this was like a prearranged code, right? That Jesus gave them that specific phrase because he'd already set up to be able to use this cult, and he knew if his disciples said these words to these people who knew about the situation, that that would be sufficient. So was it that, or did Jesus supernaturally know who the people were that would be there, and that the answer he gave his disciples for them would be sufficient? And and people have, (laughs) as they often do, strong opinions about that. But the truth is, we don't have enough here or really in the other Gospels around this account to, to be sure which it is. But we can be sure of a couple things, and I'll give those to you. The first thing we can be sure of is this was not a donkey jacking, okay? That's not what happened. There are some that have looked at this like, oh man, Jesus is just you know, ganking someone's donkey. That's not the case. It says clearly that once they said the Lord has need of it, that the people there gave them permission to take it, okay? So... And it wasn't like a, you know, you see in a movie where a cop flashes his badge, like, I need your car. You know, um, it wasn't that situation. It, it, this wasn't forced, okay? So there's, there's that. The other, maybe more important thing we can be sure of is that this whole deal was not a coincidence, okay? The prophet Zechariah wrote the words I'm about to read you roughly 500 years before this day that we're reading about here in Mark 11, and I want you to just take a moment to consider that, because sometimes we, we throw out numbers, 500 years. If, if we use 2021 as a point of reference, okay, 500 years before the day we're reading about now, if we use like, today as a reference point, about double the amount of time, okay, since Jefferson, Adams, you know, Franklin, and, and, and the rest wrote the breakup letter to King George, okay, uh, I'm talking about the Declaration of Independence in case that historical joke didn't hit, quite hit like it should. It seemed like maybe it didn't, or you guys all decided not to laugh at my jokes today. I don't know. But um, 
That was funnier than you acted like it was, but okay. But so 500 years, okay, so double the amount of time that the United States of America has existed, that much time is when Zechariah wrote this prophecy that I'm about to read you before these events, okay? Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will eliminate the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be eliminated, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Verse 9 shows us the extreme detail with which God inspired the prophet to describe how Jesus, the true king, descendant from David, the Holy One of God, endowed with salvation, would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, a colt, no less. The specificity, this was not a coincidence. Verse 10 then points us to just how different the reality of his arrival would be from what everyone expected and even what they were hoping for. The humility here of Jesus and, and his role as a servant king, it's, it's more pronounced in Mark than in any of the other Gospels. And we will see this, uh, and we do see this in the fact that he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and not some, some grand stallion, right? Or, or a war horse, and, and, and Zechariah even talked about that. There's, there's a contrast with the way most people of that time would have made an entrance if what they were doing was saying, hey, someone important is here. It wouldn't have been rolling in on a donkey. But though that's true, and there's a contrast there, this, this, the specifics of this is, is also likely a nod towards Solomon riding in on his father's donkey to his coronation in 1 Kings Chapter 1, after Adonijah tries to steal the throne. You can go take a look at that later. Adonijah sets himself up, throws a feast, declares himself king. Uh, Bathsheba and Nathan go in to talk to David about it. David says, nope, go get my donkey. And Solomon rides in on it and is then crowned king. Okay, so, and, and that's, well, you guys remember last week when Bartimaeus was yelling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. The fact that he was saying that, it was, it was clearly pointing to Jesus as the awaited Messiah. And, and unlike in the rest of his ministry, if, if you'll remember, Jesus let him do it, right? Up to that point, he would heal someone and say, don't tell anybody. Or up to that point, someone would, would, would infer that he was the one they were waiting for, and he'd be like, Shh, it's not time yet. He didn't do that to Bartimaeus, did he? And, and this, it marks a turning point. I, guess told, I told you last week, Bartimaeus is a baller. He was the first one that got to yell out about Jesus being this son of David that was, being, that was waited for, and, and, and Jesus didn't tell him to be quiet. All right? What a privilege, right? And, and this marks a big turning point, that, that now the, the word is out and Jesus is letting the word be out. And, and what he's about to do here is, is lay the smack down on two different groups of imposters, who thought that they were the ones in power. And that's, that, to me, even points more so to the, the situation with Solomon and Adonijah in 1 Kings. I, th I, think, I think it's all an echo, okay? 
And God likes to do that, just to show how sovereign he is over history. Amen? You should be more excited about that than you're acting, just so you know. Okay? Come on. What are the two groups of imposters that I'm talking about? Well, the first is the Romans. And we see that in verses 1 through 11, okay? That basically being this, this portion we, we call the triumphal entry. <clears throat> we need to understand that this whole thing, this whole situation, would have made the Roman occupiers very nervous. The first reason is that as Jesus is writing in Jerusalem, the, the time frame here, this is the time of Passover. Okay, So the Romans would have already been on edge every year at that time because estimates vary, but we can safely say at least 100,000 Jews would be in Jerusalem at this time, having made the, pilgrim, the pilgrimage from surrounding areas to celebrate the exodus from Egypt. That was the Passover celebration, right? Where God passed over the children of Israel in the judgment of Egypt, okay? So what, what does that mean? 100,000 of, of the people that you have subjugated all gathering in Jerusalem, okay? This, this was a tinderbox for a possible revolution. It was a chance for zealots to try to maybe start a riot. And, you know, make no mistake, I want to be clear about this, Jesus does start a riot here. He just does it different than anybody else would or could have possibly imagined. Okay? This, I've already said it, but this, this event of Jesus sitting on the donkey, riding in, coats being laid out before him, the people crying, Hosanna, cutting down palm branches. We, we refer to it you know, as Palm Sunday, normally celebrated the Sunday before Easter. But it's also mo- most commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. And in one sense, it is, right? You have Jesus getting the, the red carpet treatment with people, as I said, shouting Hosanna, which, which means save or, or save now as he rides in, and, and that, that them yelling Hosanna, it was really kind of their interpretation of another messianic prophecy in Psalm 118. If you want to jot that down, you can look at it later, where it talks about uh, the, you know, God's power to save, okay? So, but the, the donkey, okay? <laughs> the donkey and, and all of the rest of the humility with, with, with which Jesus came into Jerusalem so it, it was a triumphal entry in one sense, but it was also an, an ironic contrast. And this is what we may miss without some additional help in understanding historical context. There's an ironic contrast here. There, there's almost a joke being made. Really what he was doing, at least partially here, was putting the Romans on blast, almost making fun of them and their delusional worship of human power. And, and, and why do I see that? Well, here's something you may not know. The Romans had a ceremony that looked somewhat similar to uh, what we see here. It was was to honor military officials who had won great victories. It was a parade, okay? They would ride into Rome on a golden chariot wearing a crown or, or having a slave stand behind them and hold a golden crown over their head and whisper platitudes into their ears. Crowds would line the streets and cheer for them. They would, they would hold an, an ivory scepter. It was very much pomp and glamorous, and it was exalting the military prowess of, of whoever this Roman leader was. Anybody know what it was called? If you do, yell it out. It was called a triumph. 
That's what these parades were called. It gets even better than that, okay? They would ride to the temple of Jupiter, which is the most powerful god in the Roman pantheon. As a part of this, this you can look this up. There, this was all part of this parade, this, this ceremony called a triumph that the Romans would do. They, part of the thing is they would ride in to the temple of Jupiter. They would offer a sacrifice. And then they would often ride to the Colosseum because with them in the parade would be some of the prisoners they had taken from this military conquest. Oftentimes, people they had subjugated. They'd have them marching along too to be derided uh, by the, the cheering crowds. And so one of the stops on, on this parade would be at the Colosseum where they would put those prisoners in and have them be torn apart by wild beasts as a spectacle for all to see. Come on, friends. Are you seeing it yet? Do you see it yet? Jesus came into Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice as well, but not to some pathetic, demonic imitator, but to the one true God. Instead of rams and bulls being slain on an altar, the Lamb of God was slain on a cross. Instead of having his enemies torn apart by wild beasts for everyone to see, he let himself be torn apart by a mob that was acting like wild beasts. And then asked God to forgive them. Jesus was putting the Romans on blast. They may not have even caught it yet, but it goes even deeper. (laughs) I don't know, man. I'm not sure. Hold on. It goes even deeper. And I promise you, I'm not making this up. If you want to check me, go research the Roman triumph. Type it in your Google machine. This is not hard to find. These details are there, okay? One of the prerequisites for getting this grand honor from the Romans was for your forces, you know, your commanding, killing or capturing or a combination 5,000 of the enemy in battle. This is a specific thing that had to happen in order for you to get a triumph parade. Okay? Now let me read you this account from Acts 4. Not too long after Jesus dies and rises and ascends into heaven. Friends, I'm trying to show you the intricacy of the intentionality. Okay? I'm trying to tell you something here. Let me read you this from Acts 4. To get a triumph parade, you had to kill or capture 5,000 enemies. Okay? Acts 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in prison until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. 5,000. You think the Holy Spirit had Luke record that little detail in Acts 4 for no reason? Come on, man. I'm not going to preach another word until this church acts like that matters, because it matters. Somebody say something about it. Amen, man. If that don't get you to shout, then I don't know what will. Come on, man. Do you see the intentionality of all the details that God orchestrated in this thing? He's showing us something. Well, I think the Bible's made up. Boy, it'd be pretty hard. Be pretty tough. Come on, man. This whole thing was a smack in the face to the Roman idea that power comes from conquering through death and fear. Jesus triumphed 
through the power of love, conquering men's hearts and filling them with life and light. Amen. That's still weak. Amen. Come on, man. So the first group that Jesus was letting know you're not actually in power was the Romans. The second group who foolishly thought they were in control were the religious leaders of Israel. Now, we, we know this. The, the religious, we've been reading it, okay? The religious leaders didn't like Jesus before he rode into Jerusalem to the praise of huge crowds, right? They, they already weren't real big fans. They were surely fuming already just from this display, just from the, the, the coats on the donkey and Jesus riding in and people waving palm branches and coats on the road shouting Hosanna, all of this, because they knew exactly what it meant. They knew when they were crying Hosanna, these folks were connecting that to Psalm 118. They knew Jesus riding in on this colt of a donkey was a, refer- a reference to Zechariah 9, okay? That this was not lost on them. But here's the thing, even though they're, they're probably real ticked at this point, because they don't believe Jesus is who everyone else believes he is, or, or they do and they just realize, man, he, he's not a big fan of us either. <laughs> this, can, this can mean issues for our power dynamic. Even though they might have been upset at this triumphal entry, here's what we, here's what we got to realize. That they hadn't seen anything yet, okay? Because Jesus wasn't just riding into Jerusalem. The next day, he was going to roll up into the temple, and he had something to say, okay? That's verses 12 through 19. Let's just read that again real quick here. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written? My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Then when evening came, they would go out of the city. Now, I realize at first glance that the fig tree incident and the temple incident may seem unrelated. It's just something that happened on the way, but they aren't unrelated. Only the disciples saw Jesus curse the fig tree, and they surely didn't understand the meaning at first, but it connects directly to him cleansing and clearing the temple. And there's many, fairly, right, who... They wonder why Jesus cursed the fig tree when it says plainly it wasn't the season for figs, right? Like, did Jesus skip botany in school and just, you know, this was a whoops on his part? Or, or does this point back to the, the question at the beginning, like, boy, Jesus seems pretty angry in this set of verses. Like, is, does he need to treat himself, right? You know, go with Donna and Tommy one day. It's a Parks and Recs reference. If you haven't watched it, you're probably holier than me. That's okay. All right. You know, what's the deal here, man? Cursing trees for not having figs when it's not even the season for figs. The, the problem here, why is Jesus upset? The problem was that 
Normally, when fig trees had leaves, they also had figs. Okay? This one had sprouted leaves early, making it look like it should have fruit from the outside and from a distance. We'll see in verse 20 next week that the tree dries up from the roots after Jesus curses it. And and this whole thing is an object lesson. The fig tree showing the outward lack of fruit in Israel and the temple event to show the inward corruption. And John the Baptist said something in Matthew 3 that shows us clearly where God lays much of the blame for this fruitless corruption among his people. Let me read this to you. Matthew 3, starting in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? (laughs) Brother John the Baptist was a serious brother. I like him. So what does he say? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and do not assume that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is being cut down and thrown into the fire. Also, an interesting little tidbit, it, it may be a reach, I'm just going to say it because I think it's cool, you can throw it away if you don't like it, but on average when you plant a fig tree, it takes three years for it to produce figs. John the Baptist was doing his deal right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus ministered for about three years. There's an idea where John the Baptist here, in calling for repentance, these guys had, they got to, they got to see Jesus teaching what he taught, doing what he did, there was a chance for them to produce fruit. And so, what's about to happen in the temple? is fully justified. Amen. So, when, 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 why did I take you that to John the Baptist? Well, because we're seeing who, when, when we're talking about this fruitlessness, the problem, okay, who, who is God looking at? He's looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the two most prominent groups of religious leaders in Israel were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We know a lot more about the Pharisees at this point from a historical standpoint. Most of what we know about the Sadducees comes from the scriptures, uh, but we, knew, we do know some things. We know that both groups had led Israel into dead and false religion. They did it different ways, which I'm going to break down for you, but both had led Israel into dead and false religion, which invariably paves the way for corruption. It always will. It paves the way for corruption and it paves the way for people trying to pimp out and profit off of those who are genuinely seeking to worship God. That will always happen when this kind of corruption and this kind of false dead religion is being pushed by those who are supposed to be speaking for God. Leading people astray. Jesus does not take kindly to it. And it's this, it's this that aroused the the riot-inducing righteous anger out of Jesus. Righteous anger, okay? Let me, let me, and, and here's another part of this that we could miss if we aren't careful. Verse 17, let me read that to you. <clears throat> So, so Jesus 
flips everything over. He won't let anybody carry merchandise in. And what does he, what does he say? He, he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, right? And remember from Zechariah 9, the, the second half of verse 10 says this, he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth, okay? So, What's going on there? Not only, not only were they ripping people off as they exchanged money for the temple currency, right? It's like, say you travel to another country and you bring American dollars, you got to change it in. So the temple had a specific currency. So when people came, they would exchange their money from whatever their region was to the temple currency, okay? So in that exchange rate, they were ripping people off, A, and B, they were ripping people off in what they charged for sacrifices. People are coming from long distances, okay? They can't carry a lamb on their shoulders. Many of them would have been so poor, all they could afford would be doves. But even that, they were charging exorbitant amounts, okay? But aside from all of that, part of what really gets the master upset here is that they, they set up that whole operation and scam in the court of the Gentiles, the temple was set up where there was an outer area. If you were of the ilk of Israel, you could go into some of these inner areas. There was an outer court where Gentiles could stand and be and worship God. Those who had converted to trusting and believing and wanting to worship in the one true God of Israel. It was in that spot that they set up this marketplace. And that meant those from nations who wanted to worship God weren't being allowed. It was being corrupted by this whole deal. And, and all of this together, okay, it provoked the righteous anger of Christ to the point that he was flipping stuff over. Tables, chairs, standing in the way as people tried to carry that merchandise through the temple. I don't know how big Jesus was, but he had enough fire in him that I guess people decided, you know, you know what, I'm going to wait. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me, let me make something really, really clear here, because I don't want you to get the wrong idea, okay? Jesus rolled up into Jerusalem and started a riot in the temple. Jesus did not go to Rome and start a riot at the capital. Okay? What does that mean? Well, it means, you know part of what it means, Okay, What's this, what else does it mean? <laughs> it means if, if we feel like we want to flip something over, if we, feel like we, if we feel some righteous anger about how some of this has moved forward into today and be sure that it has, we need to start, if we want to flip something over, we need to start with our own hearts. We need to really take honest stock of how much of these damnable doctrines have possibly seeped into our own thinking and practice. And then we need to look at the so-called houses of worship we have today teaching the same false religion and in vain attaching the name of Jesus to it. That is the issue the people of God are concerned with and, and have something to do with and to do about, okay? How did they do it? What is this false religion, this vain teaching that, they, that, that now the name of Jesus gets attached to? Tragically. It's, it's the same lies then. They work out a little different now, but it's, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay? 
the Sadducees and the Pharisees led Israel into dead and false religion in almost two opposite ways. I'm using these terms theologically. Forget about politics for a second, okay? Everyone happy with that? Can we do that? This is, this is not about politics. Theologically, they had false teachings of legalism and liberalism. Liberal theology and legalist theology, okay? The Pharisees were the legalists. And what does that mean? How did they, how did they lead Israel into false, dead religion? Because they were teaching that you could get God to love you and to keep loving you through adhering to man-made rules. Not only did they have the commands that God had given in the Old Testament, but a bunch of additional stuff they had come up with. Many of, it, many of their additional rules, workarounds, to try to escape the implications of, of what the actual commands from God were teaching, which is a hallmark of legalism. Okay, But they had all these extra rules. Right, like ceremonial washings, very specific things that they thought, you know, they got on Jesus and his disciples about that. And there, there was a whole litany of them, okay? Um, just adherence to a whole host of extra rules, and this was what they tied righteousness to. This is what they tied relationship with God to. That's how they did it. Today, it's, I, I don't know, maybe there's some people out there teaching ceremonial washings and don't hear a whole lot of that, but you, you, do, you do see a significant portion of, of churches that, that use the name of Jesus, they'll, they'll teach things like, you know, dressing a certain way, that that's, that's, that's a man-made rule that somehow that's, that's going to get you closer to God or honor God in some way or limitations on, on what is worn on the outside of the body, far beyond what the scriptures really prescribe, which is modesty and selflessness in the way you dress. Like, that's basically the bottom line. All these little specifics, um, and, and, and so, so, many other, so many other rules and, and regulations and additional just wisdom of man that, that they heap upon people as burdens. And, and, and whether they say it explicitly or they infer it, leave people with the understanding that if you don't adhere to these rules, either God won't love you or he'll stop loving you. And what does that set you up for? It sets you up for, oh, okay, so, so maybe, maybe somebody has a, a personality or tendency to, to kind of, maybe they like some of those rules, like, okay, cool. So what that means is if, if I'm doing those things and I'm, I'm staying strict and I'm using a bunch of self-discipline and self-will, then, then I'm accepted by God. It's false religion. It's dead and hollow. The Sadducees went a different route. They were more what we would call theologically liberal. So the Sadducees believed things like there's no resurrection, right? So when they came and asked Jesus the question about the woman that, you know, her husband dies, has no son, she marries another, and it's like seven later, whose husband will she be? But the whole point of what they're doing there, it's, it's not a question about marriage. Their whole point is they're, they're, they think with their riddle that they're putting Jesus in a bind about the idea of resurrection, <laughs> that's what they think they're doing. They think they, they trap him. So they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. These are the Sadducees. Okay. Basically, what they built was, was almost a, a naturalistic... We, 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 like some of the, we like some of the outer structure of this thing, but they, it, they, they stripped any supernatural meaning from, from what the Scriptures taught. This is... You know, you might, when I talk about 
the, the legalist side of that deception manifesting today. Maybe you've never experienced, maybe it's hard for you to imagine in 2021 that that's still a thing. I promise you it is. I cannot tell you how many times we'll be out on the streets feeding those experiencing homelessness and, and we're always saying, hey man, this, you know, we, we gather here and you're welcome to come and worship Jesus with us and I cannot tell you how many times I don't have enough fingers, toes, and I, probably all of yours as well wouldn't be enough to count the amount of times people will say, well, I, I, probably, I don't feel like I can do that because I, you know, I don't have anything to wear. It's like, man, listen to me. <laughs> That's okay, and it won't be a problem here. That's just one example, okay? It's, it's maybe a silly example, but that's an example of how legalism works, how it keeps people from Jesus, all right? Somewhere along the line, they got the idea that if you're going to gather with God's people for worship, you have to look a certain way. So maybe, maybe that's, and that example is probably less prevalent. Legalism comes out in lots of other different ways, far more sneaky than that. That's a very obvious example I gave you. It, it, it creeps into our hearts in very, very covert ways. And so I'm serious when I say the, if we're, if we're, if we're going to join Jesus in his righteous anger today, the first place we need to point it is at our own hearts, okay? I'm, I'm not just saying that because that's the right thing to say. I'm real serious about it, okay? But the second way, this this kind of, this, this liberal approach to the way we, we come to God and understand the scriptures, it's <clears throat> may, maybe more prominent. I don't know if it's more prominent, but it's a serious, basically what I'm trying to get at is this is a real problem today for sure. Because back then, you know, the Sadducees, no resurrection, no angels. Today, what, you will, what you'll see commonly, and I don't know if you, maybe you've been exposed to this, but I'm telling you it's out there and it's deceiving a lot of people. There are many who will go through the scriptures and, and, and try to come up with an explanation of, of all the things that are supernatural and, and, and come up with a naturalistic explanation for it. I'll just give you a couple examples of what I mean, like feeding the 5,000. There are those that genuinely and seriously today teach that that wasn't a miracle of, of the, the, hand, the miracle wasn't in Christ's hands and, and the actual multiplying of the food as is the plain reading of the text. They would say the miracle was in the compassion of the little boy. What they would teach is that everyone there actually had a little bit of food. They were, they were hiding it and they didn't want to bring it out because they didn't want to have to share. But then when this sweet little boy offered his lunch, everyone was so inspired that they brought out their food, and then everyone was able to eat, and there was even some left over. That's how they would explain the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a miracle of human compassion, is what it is. Jesus walking on the water. Well, Israel's a desert region, and there's mirages. Did Peter sink into a mirage? I don't know. That's tough to come up with. I'm, so, I'm not trying, whew, okay. I'm not Jesus, so I probably shouldn't actually flip anything over unless it's in my own heart, so let me just take a breath. <laughs> but that's not the only one, man. They'll, they'll go through, and these, these are the jokers that with you know, letters behind their name, they're always the ones that Discovery Channel wants to talk to when we're gonna do a documentary for Easter or whatever. I'm serious. And so how many people, like that's much of their you know, exposure to Bible teaching. I mean, I know a guy that literally wants to know what alien technology Jesus had when he was healing blind people. 
that's, that's where we're going? Like, like that's, that's more believable than, than, than what the Bible's actually teaching? That, that God, the incarnate Son of God, came to earth and healed some blind people with the power of God? That we have a creator that made us? Must have had some alien tech. So yeah, he was healing deaf and blind people with it. I mean, it's funny, but it's sad. Because this is real, friends. I'm serious. You might be like, dude, you're kind of chasing ghosts that don't really apply here. Maybe in your sphere of influence, I'm just telling you this is real. And there's a lot of people led astray by this garbage. Legalism and liberalism, theologically. The basic message of that whole movement is that believing in the power of God and the supernatural means someone is archaic and foolish. And what this also leads to, most often, is a reinterpretation of the benevolent moral boundaries God has established for our benefit. It ends up with people calling what God calls evil, good. And what God calls good, they call evil. God also called that beforehand, just in case you're wondering. That that would be part of the outflow of this kind of deception. It also ends up teaching a, a hyper-grace understanding, basically that you know, n- none of our sin, none of our violation of the benevolent boundaries that God has placed for our good, n- none of that matters because of grace. Let me read verse 18 to you again. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. These these false teachings that we're looking at, they, they lead to trees with no fruit and to hollow religion. And often, when you present the truth about who Jesus is and the real message that he preached, you will see rage as a result. These guys were enraged at Jesus coming and challenging these worldviews that they had been operating in and teaching to others to the point that Israel was like a, a fig tree with leaves but no fruit. Friends, the gospel is first and foremost a message of repentance. That's an element that theological liberals miss. Believing oftentimes that the grace of God means there is no need for repentance. But also this doesn't work the way legalists teach it. Because if right now you stopped doing everything you know is wrong and started doing everything you know is right, you would still not be perfectly holy as God is holy. We cannot meet God's requirement for righteousness. Only Jesus did. And we must receive that righteousness as a gift from him through faith. If righteousness was at at the top of a mountain, we, we can't climb it. Jesus had to get up there and get it so that he could give it to us. He's the only one that made it to the mountaintop. And this... These deceptions and their outworkings, friends, this is why God's people must stay focused on the central message of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that mankind is hopelessly lost without Christ. 
but he came so that the lost may be found. That is the big point. And and there are many true followers of Jesus who have not drank the Kool-Aid of theological legalism or liberalism. But even though they haven't drank that Kool-Aid, we end up wasting tragic amounts of time and energy arguing over finer points of doctrine, bickering with one another and demonizing each other. Forgetting somehow that Jesus said the primary indicator to a watching world that we belong to him should be our love for one another. We have our hands full trying to preach the true gospel to those who've been deceived into believing there is no God or those who've been deceived into thinking they are serving him through man-made philosophies. We don't have time to be attacking one another over secondary issues. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, you know... It's like you start, you start fighting with your brothers and sisters or whatever. You're in a real good scuffle and it feels really serious because you know, whatever happened, happened and, and, or it's friends or whatever. And, and, and you're, you're in a big fight, but then, but then someone comes in with a knife and wants to kill everybody. Right? Like, doesn't that change the dynamic? We were fighting over whatever we were scuffling about. But, but if, if, what, what would help us like, contextualize the reality of that foolishness is someone coming in and wants to kill everybody. There's someone that wants to kill everybody. His name is Satan. He's got these false teachings and deceptions that work their way into faithful churches and that establish whole organizations that call themselves churches and actually utter, they have the audacity to utter the name of Jesus from their lips, but teach this kind of false garbage and lead people astray. Our hands are full, is my point. What I want to make sure I say is that this doesn't mean there's no value in discussing these things as friends. Secondary, finer points of doctrine, there there is great value in that if it's done in the right spirit because we can help sharpen each other and we can increase understanding. But we must have wisdom and charity and humility when we do that. And we need to be careful of the audience. I have had to repent publicly several times as a younger man for getting into theological debates in the, just in the wrong environment, not having the wisdom or the humility to understand the people around me, even though me and my friend, it, you know, it looks like we're about to knock each other's teeth out over whatever it is we're arguing about, but really at the end of the thing, we can hug and we're good. We know that, but not everyone else does, which probably means social media is not the right place for these conversations. I, I, you know, I don't have a mic to drop, but if I did, that would have been an appropriate point to do it. All right? I'm hoping all of you dorks are getting together, sitting around fires and talking about finer points of doctrine and having fun. Invite me. That's fun. Amen. But, but with charity and humility and understanding where, where that lands in the order of importance and understanding the gravity of the situation largely, like we are just lulled into this kind of, like it's, it's all not big deal, you know, man, th- there is a war going on. Do you understand that? 
There is a spiritual battle for the souls of people. Satan wants to keep as many people as he can away from Jesus. And Jesus called us to be the light that moves into this world and dispels that foolish darkness. There's, there's a serious mission here that is, is and should be the first priority of every Jesus follower. And the rest of our lives should fall in behind that as details. We, we need to also be careful today as, as we observe the foolishness of the religious leaders as we place ourselves in this scenario, right? Because most of us probably placing ourselves in this triumphal entry scenario would imagine ourselves among the crowd shouting Hosanna and rejoicing in the saving power of the Messiah. Like, oh yeah, I my coat would have been off, right? I mean, there's something even more to that. I mean, people didn't have 18 coats in their closet back then, so it's a big deal, man. It's a big, big sign of like honor, to take off that outer garment you have one of, probably, and lay it on the road so this donkey's hooves don't touch the dirt in honor of the king that's riding him. Just maybe a little sidebar about how we should approach Jesus and what kind of honor he deserves. And it was good. Glad you said so. See, they spread their coats on the road for him because they thought he would liberate them from Roman oppression. But they ended up disappointed to find out he was coming to free them from the slavery of sin instead. How many of them would have laid their coat down if they knew what he was really up to? And I wonder how many of us have fallen into a similar trap. Adoring and worshiping God when it looks like he's doing what we think he should do. But scorning him when he deviates from our expectations. And... and, and just, just to be all the way 100 with you on this, we have far less of an excuse for this fickleness. Because the crowds that day had no way of understanding God's purposes in Christ being crucified. But we, dear friends, we can see the glory of the resurrection and we have the benefit of the Spirit of God residing in us as his New Testament temple. Which is the other reason why I'm saying if something needs flipped over today... In here is the place to start. There's, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to rail against false religion today, there's really no place to go and flip stuff. Okay? Nor am I advocating... Maybe, maybe I should make that really clear since we're on the internet. Hey, live stream, love y'all. Nothing that I'm saying today is advocating going to any physical location and flipping anything. Shooter McGavin. Okay. We, what, what do I mean by, by why we have less of an excuse for the fickleness? Okay, friends, we should not be surprised when God works for our good in ways we would never expect. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. And even when he goes so far as to shape and form us in the forge of trials and troubles. Why are you saying we shouldn't be surprised by that? Well, um, because our Savior King went in and died on a cross to kick this thing off. That might be a good indicator. And then there's a bunch of times after that where he warned us there would be trials and problems. And then the Spirit in inspired his disciples and Paul the Apostle to tell us we're going to have trials and problems. Like it, it wasn't like he left us unaware here. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised. As a matter of fact, we're called to this very strange reaction to these things, that we rejoice in them. Another way that hopefully the outside watching world will see that there is supernatural power at work here in the people of God. This isn't just some, some naturalistic assembly of people and, and the miracle is not in our human compassion. Our hope today, friends, is that in all these things, may we see that God is truly in control and is truly working for our good so we can worship him with our trust and spend our lives inviting others to do the same. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Lord, thank you for the triumphal entry. Thank you that even... In, in the events that are so serious, uh, you, you riding into Jerusalem to the praise and, and the acclaim of the people, and then the next day rolling up in the temple and just causing a ruckus. There's so much. This is, this is serious content that we're covering today, but that even in it, there, I see your sense of humor. I see you, I see you just, just punking those that, were, that thought they were the power brokers, thought they had it all on lockdown. Lord, they didn't, and you showed us. Thank you that in this triumphal entry... You, you showed the Romans that their, their parades of triumph were nothing but spectacles for fools because only fools would put all their hope in the delusion of human power. Thank you that you showed us a better way. Thank you, Lord, you are a conquering king, but you conquer by serving and loving. Thank you that it's the kindness of God that draws men to you. Lord, we lay our hearts open before you right now. We know that we, wherever we were or would have been that day, maybe we would have been shouting Hosanna, maybe our coat would have been on the ground. We know, Lord, that there are still dark spots in our understanding. We know that we are still subject to being pulled out of the pure, beautiful truth of your gospel, that we are, that we are tempted to make up a buffet of, of theological legalism and liberalism and, and come up with our own ideas and and even if we don't say it out loud, it affects the way we live and how we, our inner thought life and, and what we emphasize, how we spend our time. So Lord, we confess these sins. We ask for your help. We ask you to burn from us as in a forge of fire. Burn from us the, these foolish deceptions. Show us where they've hidden themselves. Help us, God. We, we want to think your thoughts we want to emphasize what you emphasize. We want to focus on what you focus on. And Lord, help us always, always to first look to flip something over in our own hearts. We are so tempted to look at the brokenness of the world, to blame politics or someone else's politics or all these other things. Lord, when you came to Israel, you wanted to talk to the religious leaders. You wanted to talk to those that were supposed to be preaching the truth of your word. That's who you had words for. And so, Lord, we know when it comes to all the troubles we see in our day, that for us to sit back and to, and to blame someone else's sin or expect someone else to handle the issues, Lord, your church is supposed to be the light of the world, the salt that holds back and stops the rot of sin. 
And so, Lord, help us rise up into the position for which you've anointed us, for which you've empowered us, for which you've indwelt us. Help us stop making excuses and thinking it's someone else's problem or it's, it's someone else's sin. And so if they could get themselves right, then all would be okay. Lord, help us to move into this world with a fierce love and a loyalty to you and to your gospel. And God, would you grant us, please, the ability to, to be able to see, to whatever degree we are able to see and to acknowledge the working of your hands, that in all the things that trouble us and all the things that cause us anxiety, Lord, <laughs> that you're moving. You always have been. Your promises are true, and our hope is found there. It's in nothing else. We love you, Master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.